You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Mobilizing DDoS as a service, Interpol takes down the Black Axe gang members. A look at phishing trends. Spider Loader is active in Hong Kong. Joe Kerrigan looks at Google's launch of passwordless authentication. Our guest is Dr. Iman El Sheikh from University of West Florida's Center for Cybersecurity on NSA-funded National Cybersecurity Workforce Development Programs. And Europol announced arrests in a case of keyless car hacking. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. The Russian hacktivist group with the ungainly name No Name 05716 has been organizing DDoS attacks and website defacements against Ukraine and its Western supporters. It pays operators between $315 and $1,255 for their services. Radware described the operation late last week, stating, In July, threat group NoName 05716 quietly launched a crowdsourced botnet project named Didosia. The project, similar to the pro-Ukrainian Liberator by Disbalancer and the fully automated DDoS bot project by the IT Army of Ukraine, leverages politically driven hacktivists willing to download and install a bot on their computers to launch denial-of-service attacks. Project Didosia, however, raises the stakes by providing financial incentives for the top contributors to successful denial-of-service attacks. Researchers at Avast had earlier described the group's use of Bobic malware in its campaigns. They divided a typical no-name 05716 attack into reconnaissance and execution phases, stating, The first step is looking for a target that supports Ukraine or a target with anti-Russian views. The attackers analyze the structure of the target's website and identify pages that can cause server overloading, especially requests requiring higher computing time, such as searching, password resetting, logon, and so forth. The second step is filling in the XML template, encrypting it, and deploying it to the CNC servers. The attackers monitor the condition of the target server and modify the XML configuration based on needs to be more effective. The configuration is changed approximately three times per day. So, it's a simple formula— Find a vulnerable target with anti-Russian views, hit the target, and repeat as necessary. An Interpol-led operation has resulted in the arrests of 75 alleged members of the Africa-based Black Axe crime organization, the Register reports. Two of the suspects arrested in South Africa are accused of stealing $1.8 million through online scams. According to Interpol, codenamed Operation Jackal The joint law enforcement effort mobilized 14 countries across four continents in a targeted strike against Black Axe and related West African organized crime groups. Black Axe wasn't just a local gang. It was a criminal organization that had achieved a global reach. 
Interpol regards the operation as a major strike against transnational cybercrime. The police agency said in a statement, Operation Jackal marks the first time Interpol has coordinated a global operation specifically against Black Axe, which is rapidly becoming a major security threat worldwide. Black Axe and similar groups are responsible for the majority of the world's cyber-enabled financial fraud as well as many other serious crimes, according to evidence analyzed by Interpol's Financial Crime and Anti-Corruption Center and National Law Enforcement. Interpol added, The immense quantity of assets seized, including 12,000 SIM cards, have provided new investigative leads for law enforcement, generating 13 analytical reports and allowing police to identify more than 70 additional suspects. The lavish lifestyles and greed of many suspects was on clear display at the scenes of their arrest. Various luxury assets were seized, including a residential property, three cars, and tens of thousands in cash. Black Axe has been a threat for several years. Harper's, in 2019, published an account of the group's originally non-criminal origins in a Nigerian university and its evolution into a political movement and then into a criminal gang with some of the coloration of a religious cult. Cofence has released a report today detailing phishing intelligence trends in the third quarter of 2022. Overall, it was found that malware delivery activity dropped in July with the disappearance of Emotet, with the volume staying the same after July's drop. The top five malware types from quarter two were also the top malware types for quarter three, with keyloggers and remote access trojans gaining traction in this quarter. Loaders, keyloggers, information stealers, remote access trojans, and bankers were, in that order, the top five malware types, with Emotet, Agent Tesla, Formbook, Remcos Rat, and CACBOT taking prominence as the top malware families of each type. Emotet vanished from the phishing landscape in July of this year, which had a major impact on the trends shown in the report. The overall amount of phishing attacks for the quarter was significantly lower in the absence of Emotet, and the delivery mechanism and malware types used by Emotet topped the rankings in the start of the quarter and diminished over time. However, Emotet still outscaled all other malware delivery families despite its short use this quarter. It is possible, due to traffic observed in October by Cofence, that Emotet may be back. CACBOT was identified by Cofence as the malware family to watch during the third quarter, and despite low overall volume, there were developments and new tactics, techniques, and procedures. A new tactic of CACBOT operators includes hard-coding payloads into malicious HTML attachments instead of using embedded URLs or redirects. Researchers at Symantec warn that the Operation Cuckoo Bees campaign, first observed by Cyber Reason in May 2022, now appears to be targeting government entities in Hong Kong with the spider loader malware. The researchers state, The victims observed in the activity seen by Symantec were government organizations, with the attackers remaining active on some networks for more than a year. We saw the spider loader malware deployed on victim networks, indicating this activity is likely part of that ongoing campaign. While we did not see the ultimate payload in this campaign, Based on the previous activity seen alongside the spider loader malware, it seems likely the ultimate goal of this activity was intelligence collection. Symantec doesn't attribute the campaign to any particular threat actor, 
but Cyber Reason tied the earlier activity to the Chinese APT Winti and saw the goal of the attacks as theft of intellectual property. Symantec notes that the duration and focus of the campaign, which has persisted through several versions of the malware employed, indicates a determined and persistent threat actor. Europol has announced 31 arrests as the result of an operation against a gang exploiting keyless cars produced by two French manufacturers, stating, As a result of a coordinated action carried out on 10 October in the three countries involved, 31 suspects were arrested. A total of 22 locations were searched and over 1 million euros in criminal assets seized. French authorities had the lead in the investigation with cooperation from authorities in Latvia and Spain. So how are they pulling it off? The thieves used, according to Europol, a fraudulent tool marketed as an automotive diagnostic solution, which they employed to replace the vehicle's original software. From there, just open the door and push to start. The alleged crooks who were rounded up included software developers, software resellers, and the actual goons on the ground who jacked the cars. So, aux gendarmes, bravo into the hoods, what can we say? Push to start, mes amis. Coming up after the break, Joe Kerrigan looks at Google's launch of passwordless authentication. Our guest is Dr. Iman El-Sheikh from the University of West Florida's Center for Cybersecurity on NSA-funded National Cybersecurity Workforce Development Programs. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
the U.S. federal government has several active initiatives to help narrow the cybersecurity talent gap, including partnerships with colleges and universities. Dr. Iman El-Sheikh is Associate Vice President at the Center for Cybersecurity at the University of West Florida, where she and her colleagues are leading participation in NSA-funded National Cybersecurity Workforce Development Programs. The idea kind of leverages the faculty expertise and the curricula that's available at colleges and universities across the country that are designated as national centers of academic excellence by the NSA and helps them create training and alternative uh, credentialing programs and pathways so that we can reach additional students beyond the academic programs. Um, if you think about it, no, you know, we have over in the, right now across the country, you know, 500,000 open cyber jobs and that number's going up, not uh, down. And so if we continue to only focus on getting uh, students into academic degree programs, we're never going to um, meet the demand. And so what we'd like to do is help everyone leverage their expertise to create training, to create alternative credentials, to create certificate programs, and more importantly, to reach diverse populations, transitioning military, uh, veterans, um, career changers, high schoolers, so that we can really expand the number of pipelines and pathways into cybersecurity roles. Well, help me understand, uh, give us an idea of the sorts of things that you and your colleagues are doing there at University of West Florida. So one of the things we're doing is uh, leading a coalition of 10 colleges and universities across the country in order to really kind of ex provide diverse training programs and pathways across the country. We have really, uh, a number of years ago um, at UWF, taken the lead on developing workforce development uh, programs and uh, training pathways with the idea that that's really the, you know, the way that our, we're going to help our country um, meet this national uh, workforce challenge. Um, and so what we're doing is developing kind of short course, um, short duration training pathways that align with national best practices. So for example, they focus on cybersecurity work roles that are defined by the NICE uh, cybersecurity framework um, so that we can identify specifically what knowledge and skilled competencies are needed for each work role, develop or adapt curricula to specifically train for those knowledge and competencies, and then help provide those in flexible formats to veterans, to transitioning military, to diverse populations to really kind of, um, you know, increase the workforce. Um, another thing that we, you know, are doing is that, you know, focusing on providing digital credentials and badges so that those who, let's say, if you're coming out of the military, you already have a degree, but your degree may not be current, right? And so if we can provide a short course training program, as well as the credentials, and link them to jobs and employers, then they'll be well on their way to a second uh, career, a second tour of service, and to helping us meet that workforce crisis. Well, so how does this compare to a traditional four-year degree or, or even a two-year associate's degree? Uh, that's a great question, Dave. Uh, the idea is that we want to kind of focus on employability. Um, and so it differs in the sense that 
we bring in the best of kind of various worlds, you know, the uh, two-year and four-year degree programs, as well as training programs offered, for example, by training providers, as well as employer needs and national best practices. And we try to roll it into a program that is shorter in duration, so can typically be completed in three to six months. In most cases, can also be completed online or hybrid or virtual. Also integrates employer needs, such as industry certifications, such as hands-on skills. We take a lot of effort into incorporating range-based, cyber range-based exercises and um, tabletop exercises and hands-on activities so that the idea is to really give them kind of the, the boot camp version of the training, the credentials, and the skills and competencies to get people, you know, prepared for and into um, cyber jobs. I would imagine a program like this is also quite attractive because you're not loading someone up with a lot of college debt. I mean, it's it's a shorter program, so uh, they're not going to have that expense. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's definitely a great benefit. And I should also point out that, um, you know, thanks to the generous NSA grant, this program, um, Cyber Skills to Work, is able to fund 1,700 transitioning military and veterans uh, for training and connecting with employers at no cost to them. So it'll be completely free to eligible participants. And those interested can go to the website, cyberskillstowork.org, to actually, uh, it serves as a one-stop shop. It um, allows them to take an optional aptitude assessment test so that they can kind of get an idea of which cyber work roles may be a good fit for them. It allows them to see what training pathways will be offered this year and next year. It allows them to apply through a common application to those training programs um, and then be uh, apply for scholarships to be fully funded. Uh, and then also at the tail end, it allowed them to connect with employers and job opportunities. So it definitely helps provide everything so that they just have to focus on committing the time to learn. Um, but, you know, more importantly than that, another kind of, that's a great feature. Another important feature is that it's very just in time or as needed as well, because what we're seeing is that, you know, the cyber threat landscape continuously evolves. The, the, the threat actors are getting more sophisticated. The attacks are getting more sophisticated. And, you know, the curricula in traditional colleges and universities is hard to keep up. There's a, an approval process, for example, for public universities to update their curricula or update the, their degree programs that takes a year at best, maybe even three to four years but this program is designed to be more agile and flexible where we can connect with those employers and federal partners and really keep the curricula relevant and up to date and dynamic so that what they're getting and what they're learning is what is actually needed in jobs today and tomorrow. That's Dr. Iman El-Sheikh from the University of West Florida. Joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, interesting story here. I, I guess a, a bit of an update. Uh, this is from the Hacker News. 
Uh, and the article is titled Google Rolling Out Passkey Passwordless Login Support to Android and Chrome. Mm-hmm. What's going on here, Joe? So we heard we talked about this on the CyberWire back in May, April? Yeah, a few months Time ago. Frame? A while yeah. ago. Yeah. Uh, and the Fido Alliance has come out with this idea of uh, passkeys, right. which are essentially a public uh, public key cryptography. You, put, you, know, you have a, a private key on your phone or on your device and and uh, the public key is stored in the cloud at whatever at whatever site you need to authenticate to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it's time for you to authenticate, they show you something like a in this thing it looks like a QR code. Yep. Uh, you scan that with your with your phone. Your phone then interprets the QR code and and understands what it needs to do cryptographically. It sends something to the uh, to the service to say here's what uh, here's a verification. And then the website can let you in. I see. So I'm not exactly sure how this works on the back end, uh-huh. but it's from the Fido Alliance, so they've done a pretty good job of, <laughs> of <laughs> right. And it's backed crypto. by big names. Big, they yeah. say they got Google, Apple, and Microsoft on board. Right. So I would imagine there's been appropriate scrutiny. <laughs> yeah, this is probably cryptographically sound. Yeah. I mean, you never yeah. really. I say probably, and and. To the layman, that means cryptographically sound. Yeah. But to uh, people like Matt Green, that means I'll bet I could find something wrong with this. <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it's a um, it's it's using the standard uh, the standard. Th- the big thing here, it's using standard cryptography. But the big thing here is that this is just another nail in the coffin, the m- richly deserved and much anticipated and long overdue coffin of passwords. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm very happy to see this being rolled out. From a user's point of view, do you think this streamlines things? I would think that it—that's a good question. I don't know. Here's my my issue with this. Sometimes when I'm sitting at my computer, my phone might be across the room, right? Yeah. Or in a different room, like on my desk where I came home and left it. Right. Uh, and now I'm trying to—or uh, my dresser. And now I'm trying to—now I'm trying to log in. i got to get up and go in there. Maybe uh, I'm always willing to make those sacrifices for security. Yeah. Um, but I— don't know that other people will be. What happens if you lose your phone? Uh, or you know, well, actually, this article says that your your uh, your keys are kept in Google's implementation. Your keys are kept uh, encrypted in their cloud, so you can get them back, so you can still authenticate. Right, and uh, not and Google themselves can't and decrypt. Go- yeah, them. Google themselves can't use them. Uh, so, assuming that Google has done everything properly, then you're probably well protected against losing your phone. And Google has done a good job of, of most of the security that they've implemented. I would like to remind everyone, security is not the same as privacy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But security-wise, Google is very, very good. Yeah, yeah. So uh, th- rolling this out, I mean, like you said, that, that it'll be interesting to see what kind of adoption we get from this. Right. Uh, as we said, you've, we've got support from some big players here. So I will th- happily th- adopt it because it is a form of public key encryption. Yeah. Which is, you know, you have the private key and if someone hacks, let's say you're using this on some mail service and mm-hmm. someone hacks that mail service and they get your public key, that doesn't do anything. Right. It really, it doesn't help. Uh, a malicious actor at all take your account over. Mm-hmm. They point out that this is cross-platform, which I think is great. They, they make the point that an Android user could log in using a website using Safari mm-hmm. on iOS or macOS or right. you know Chrome browser and Windows. So uh, it, it's uh, universal access here. It's a good thing. Right. You're just generating a, a an image of a QR code and showing it to the user who then uses some application on the back end or on the uh, 
to take a picture of that QR code and, and verify that they have the private key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which establishes identity, essentially. Right, right. I, I wonder where where we will see this first. I don't know, you know? <laughs> but I'll tell you what. I'll sign up for it because I'm big on the private key, and, uh, you know, public-private key authentication. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not, it's, this is, what I like about this is it seems like it's a fairly transparent to the user way of doing it. Mm-hmm. That's a very long hyphenated name of saying it's easy for the, the average user to do. Right. Uh, you know, if you think how I authenticate to any SSH server that I use for work. I have to go to a command prompt and, and first off, generate the key, then then probably and actually usually, in fact, always, <laughs> I put a password on that key and I have to store that password. So now I have to manage the password for the keys. Then I have to upload the public key to the server that I'm going to authenticate to, uh, which means I have to be physically present to do that. Then, and only then, can I finally authenticate with public key encryption? This is not like that. This is on, on your phone. You you are going to establish the identity, and there's there's an integrated way to do that. And when it comes time to uh, utilize the the authentication method, your trusted platform module will handle the the key. Right. And storage of that key is encrypted in Google's cloud. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you know the the combo of having both the physical possession of the device, your mobile device, right. along with some sort of biometric verification. Mm-hmm. You know, I suppose like, you know, uh, on planet Apple, it'll be Face ID. Face but, ID, uh, which is remarkably good as a biometric goes. Yeah, and Android has their own version of that. And, they have, uh, yeah, they have the thumbprint as well, right, the fingerprint. Right, so the, the those two things, uh, you know, pretty secure and also these days pretty fast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we will see. Time will tell. I, I'm curious. Uh, let's let's agree to keep track and see. Uh, agree. Where I'll, we see this first. <laughs> and I'll let you know when I use it, when I set it up. All right. I'll send you an email. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Varmatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.